This episode and this message is brought to you by MedSchool Coach. Go to medschoolcoach.com ITB for a special offer and to learn more about how you can get your own personalized study plan, connect with an experienced mentor and coach who can guide you throughout your USMLE prep or whatever test or difficulty you are facing in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Before we get into today's content, here is another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, founder and CEO of Med School Coach, the premier medical education tutoring and admissions consulting company. It has helped nearly 10,000 students get into and through medical school. All right, so we're here with another Med School Coach Minute with Sahil Mehta, who is the founder and CEO of Med School Coach. All right, Sahil, when a student comes to Med School Coach looking for a mentor, how do you guys identify the areas on which a student needs some work? Yeah, so, you know, at Med School Coach, we really are prioritizing helping students in an individual way. That means that we're really digging deep into understanding what every individual's weaknesses and strengths are, because we don't want to necessarily waste our time and waste tutoring time on helping them through a subject that they already know, that they're already scoring great in. We want to really focus in on the things that they're weak in and and help them raise their score there. So one of the first things that we do is we do a comprehensive intake, and, and we make sure that we identify utilizing all the resources that are out there where the student may be weakest in. Now, what's one of the great things about USMLE is that there are a ton of preparation materials, right? There's a ton of great Q banks out there. There's even practice tests from NBME. And all of these actually feed you back data-driven information in the sense that you can actually see, okay, physiology is my weakest subject. Or conversely, you know, anatomy is my weakest subject. And because we have all this data from all the different places that people can utilize to study from, what we do at Med School Coach is we really try to synthesize that data and figure out what it is that you as an individual student are lacking. So do the students submit um, various uh, metrics to you uh, during that intake? They do, yeah. So we ask our students to basically comprehensively submit to us not just our own questionnaire, but also any practice tests that they've done, any score reports from question banks that they have, even potentially their medical school transcripts and their medical school uh, performance up until that point, because all of that helps us synthesize and understand how best to help an individual student. And what's uh, kind of the average tutoring relationship look like? How often do people meet and uh, how do they meet? Yeah, so it's variable in terms of how often people meet based on the student's needs. So we have some students who may be taking the test in, let's say, three to four weeks who really need comprehensive help and really want help every single day for multiple hours a day. And we can provide that. 
There are other students who are coming to us much earlier on in the process. Let's say they're early in their second year of medical school and want sort of guidance maybe once or twice a week only to make sure that they're on the right track, maybe to refresh some material that they learned or didn't understand, or maybe even to study for a test that's coming up, all in preparation eventually for step one, but not necessarily in that dedicated study time. So we work with students throughout the spectrum of people who want multiple hours a day to just a couple hours a week, if even less than that. Now, all our tutoring at Med School Coach, we really believe that conducting it over an online whiteboard is really important. So we can actually write out equations. We can write out and draw out concepts. We can see the students. They can see us. And I think that that relationship, I mean, it's as close as a one-on-one relationship in person. Sorry, it's as close as an in-person relationship as you can get. And that really helps our students maximize their score. And not only that, but a lot of your tutors also write practice USMLE-style questions, so they're engaged in kind of that targeted work as well. Is that the case? Absolutely. So uh, our tutors are actually not just great in the material, but they have a step beyond that. So we're really looking for tutors who have an understanding, not just of the basic concepts, but of how the step one tests those concepts. And, you know, they, they have demonstrated that through their own ability to do well on the test, but also through writing practice questions for various Q banks, through just basically being a, another step above just knowing the content and really understanding how step one is testing that content. All right. To get 10% off Med School Coach's tutoring services, go to medschoolcoach.com slash ITB. Welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is Stuart. I am joined today with Alex, who's been sort of voluntold to come help me with some renal questions. So how are you doing, Alex? I'm good. How are you, Stuart? I am alive and well, and um, this is going to be like one of the last couple things I do with the podcast before uh, I ship off for my board study. And I think you're in the same boat, right? Yep, exact same boat. So Tell me a little bit. How is your um, how is your studying going? Like I, I know you're in a different situation. So could you speak to the fact that like uh, you're doing um, you're kind of working and studying, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I can for those who don't know, um, I actually failed my boards the first time I took them. So I've been in rotations and studying for retaking my boards at the same time. And luckily my school is letting me do that. Um, Not all schools do that. So what's going to happen is I've been in all my rotations, taking all my comsays, doing literally everything a third year does on top of doing everything a second year does for studying for boards. So it's been a bit stressful, but hopefully in about two months or so, it'll all be well and taken care of and I'll have been finished with step one and can move on to bigger and better things for fourth year. Oh, yeah. I mean, my heart goes out to that. I can't imagine trying to balance the two of those things together. So when you're uh, studying for your boards and you think, you know, this is so hard, just know that some people have it harder. <laughs> so I wanted to do some renal questions today. How Have you looked over renal any since you've been studying? Uh, I have. Um, so what I've been doing is with my rotations being at the same time, I've basically been doing like when I'm on my cardiology rotation, I study cardiology. When I was on my nephrology rotation, I studied nephrology. So it's been about two months since I've studied it. So I might be a little bit rusty, but I did do nephrology rotation for a month. So hopefully that means that I at least remember some of this. 
Oh yeah, and I bet you can provide some like really valuable insight from like the more clinical side sometimes. So oh, let's see how it goes. I'll definitely bring up those points as well, like during these questions if we can, or if I have something of note for that. Yeah, no worries if not. So let's dig in. Do you want me to do the first one? Sure, sounds good. All right, so we have a 40-year-old male comes to the office because of a low urine output for the past 48 hours. He also says that his feet and ankles appear swollen. He has had kidney stones in the past, which have reduced his urine output, but he states that it does not feel the same. Examination shows pitting edema of both ankles. The differential diagnosis includes thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura and hemolytic uremic syndrome. Which of the following findings is most helpful in differentiating thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura versus hemolytic uremic syndrome? The answer choices are A, hemoglobin concentration less than 8, B, platelet count less than 1400, C, a recent history of abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea, or D, fever? So, you know, looking at the answer choices, I've got to look at thrombotic, thrombocytopenic, purpura, and hemolytic uremic syndrome. Both of these are characteristically known for having an increased bleeding time mm-hmm. and a, uh, you know, you're, you have like anemia and you have a thrombocytopenia. So answer choices like a low platelet count, less than 140,000 is going to be off the answer choices. Uh, anemia is going to be hard to differentiate the two. And fever is definitely going to be present in both of these. So that, that leaves me with the history of abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. And that would be the correct answer. As you said, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura and hemolytic uremic syndrome both can cause hemolytic anemia. They both cause decreased platelet counts, and they both can cause a fever. So the only answer choice here of the four that we gave is that they have to be differentiated by the history of abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. Right. And these are both really hard to differentiate. They're very similar. And you're really relying on some ancillary test or your clinical scenario for getting the answer here. So both have an inability to urinate. You might have your edema of the you know periorbital edema, ankle edema. But what you're going to find is when you have a patient with hemolytic uremic syndrome, my immediate thought jumps to like a child that has mm-hmm. E. coli bacteremia, right? So they, they have diarrhea from, bloody diarrhea from the 0157H7 uh, variety of E. coli. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, so that does. Yeah, so I, I hear, I think about that, and when I think about thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, I, I really think about there's like this pentad that I think people love to like really harp on because it's, you know, bigger than a triad or tetrad or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it's kind of fairly remember rememberable. So you have thrombocytopenia, which if you have thrombocytopenia, you're more prone to bruising and purpura. Mm-hmm. You have hemolytic anemia. It's a microangiopathic. You might have neurological symptoms. So I think about like confusion, delirium, seizures, coma, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Kidney failure. And then fever is the other one that goes with that for me. Yeah. So that's all. Those That is the pentad. And something I'd like to add is just that A lot of the symptoms from this all kind of relate back to the fact that you're going to be having the increased bleeding. So like in 
with both TTP and HUS is since they're both causing increased bleeding time and increased anemia, you're going to have patients who are presenting with like weakness and they'll have the swelling in their extremities. And that's commonly what I've seen in rotations is that when patients have these kind of situations or these kind of diseases, I should say, they usually are like, oh, I haven't been able to pee for a few weeks and they'll have the swollen eyes and the ankles. And then they'll just also be very like on CBC will have a lot of signs of just anemia and bleeding and so forth. So part of this, you get like a, a renal failure. This can be like, it, this would be intrarenal, right? Because you, you kind of mm-hmm. have like this toxic buildup within the blood. Mm-hmm. In that case, you, you know, when I, I'm usually approaching a, a renal question, they typically give you your BUN and creatinine. And like one of the first things I do is go and calculate that ratio and figure out if it's important, you know, is this going to be intrarenal, pre-renal, or post-renal? Mm-hmm. And then I kind of go about dissecting my questions from there. And then the other part of that is, you know, sometimes they'll give you a, I think it's called the fractional excretion yes. of sodium. Fractional excretion but of sodium. But it, 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 it's like F-E-N-A, mm-hmm. usually abbreviated, which makes me prone to forget it. But that, for a, a normal patient, is usually pretty low. And when you start to have renal damage, that might start or might begin to creep up, in which case you're you're looking at uh, a, a kidney failure that might be intrarenal, right? Mm-hmm. There are a few tables that is worth looking at and knowing, you know, the different kinds of ways you can get renal failure outside of these two diseases. Yeah. And FINA, actually, we use that a lot in the hospital that I've been at. And something that is really easy to do with the FINA is just that if it's below one, that means it's pre-renal, meaning that there's some kind of decreased circulatory volumes. So like low output heart failure, someone who's hypotensive or is like dehydrated. Whereas if it's above 2%, that's considered like acute tubular necrosis or some other damage to the actual renal system itself. And then if it's between those two, it's kind of like can be anything or can be a combination of both of them. Right. And even post-renal kind of symptoms are possible with that. And, and then the the thing that, that I don't think really gets touched on is what a normal uh, FENA is. And, and I believe that's actually supposed to be actually fairly low. Yes, it's generally less than 1% in most patients, that I, at least that I've seen. I only touch on that because I, I feel like that gets left out a lot of the time. So to kind of follow this up, and we can just brush through this real quick. So I'll go ahead and read it. <clears throat> a nine-year-old boy is brought to the office because of fatigue and low urine output for three days. He was recently admitted to the hospital because of bloody diarrhea, abdominal pain, and cramping for three days. He was treated for infectious diarrhea with intravenous fluids and antibiotics. His mother says that no one else in the family is unwell. His temperature is 98 degrees Fahrenheit, pulse of 87, respirations of 18, and blood pressure of 117 over 78. Examination shows periorbital edema and cutaneous petechiae. Which of the following is a characteristic of the most likely causative agent? Is it A, it ferments sorbitol but does not make glucuronidase. B, it produces a capsular antigen to evade the complement system. C, it produces a toxin that inactivates a ribosomal subunit. Or D, it produces a toxin that increases CGMP levels. So what do you think? In this kind of question, uh, we're again talking about HUS uh, or hemolytic uremic syndrome. 
which, as we said before, is commonly caused by our E-Hec E. coli's, which carry a uh, Shiga-like toxin. So because of that, and I know what Shiga toxin does, it produces a toxin that inactivates the ribosomal subunit. So I'm going to say C is the correct answer in that the most likely cause of the HUS is EHEC with Shiga toxin causing inactivation of the 60S ribosomal subunit in endothelial cells. As for for the other choices, some people might think of D and we're like, oh, wait, but E. coli causes increased cyclic GMP. And that's actually the other strain of E. coli, which is traveler's diarrhea, which is the watery diarrhea rather than the Shiga toxin, which is the bloody diarrhea, which is what we're talking about here. So for people who maybe flipped those two toxins, just make sure you know the difference between E-HEC and E-TEC. Yeah, and, and uh, definitely check out, I'm going to make a unsolicited plug for Sketchy Medical here, their micro videos on E. coli and Shigella will will guide you through this pretty remarkably well. Agreed, agreed. And so the reason I, I like this question at just as a quick follow-up to the one we just did is because it gives you this scenario that I was talking about where I would imagine to see HUS. In adults, it you know, diarrhea is not a necessity for HUS, I don't believe. That doesn't mean it can't happen though. And then this question has these two toxins that, you know, they have two different ways of acting. And you, you brought up how this can be confusing between EHEC and ETEC. And, and I think this is important because you know, when you get a question like this, sometimes you can you can kind of play the game of the question two ways. You see this, it produces a toxin blank. And either one of these is right and the other one is wrong, or the other way you could play this is maybe neither of these are right. And like when I look at that and I, I think about these, I'm like, well, if neither of these are right, what is it doing here? Is it producing capsular antigen that I, I wouldn't really think about that with a enteritis kind of symptom. And then the fermenting sorbitol is actually a unique feature of EHEC in that it does not ferment sorbitol, unlike regular E. coli. So in which case I'm playing the game of which of these two toxins. And then like you said, if you know that traveler's diarrhea has like the heat labile and heat stable toxins, stable toxin you know the 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 stable toxin does the guanocyclase Mm -hmm. and and that will increase the cgmp levels so you have to know you do have to know some medicine unfortunately to answer this question but i I do like looking at when they give you these two options that it's got to be one or the other it can't be both or it could be neither Mm -hmm. you know just kind of framing how you can go about ruling that out in this case right yeah agreed it's like the uh how to take the boards kind of questions is that there's if there's multiple yeah. answer choices that are all like all saying something about a toxin, you can pretty much guarantee that at least part of what the question is going to be asking you is one of those answers usually. Um, so you can kind of subdivide in your mind the question set answer choices into the toxins and then everything else. So with like another question that would be, say, having eight different enzymes in it, but in four of the answer choices, they all have IL-12. You can probably guess that IL-12 is in it, so you can then eliminate that other answer. 
but that's just more test taking strategy rather if you don't know things and you're trying to guess your way through stuff. Oh yeah. And you know, the, the strategy is, it can help you, you know, if example of this that I think, you know, so my dad actually taught me this technique randomly one day while he was reviewing for his like pals certification mm-hmm. and he he showed me a multiple choice question where it had do you give the patient saline or do you give the patient like uh what is saline normally if you were to say like what percent like a three percent sodium solution yeah yeah three percent sodium solution and he was like both of these cannot be right because they're the same thing you know when you see that you can kind of generalize that for questions like this where you have these separate or together kind of toxins Mm -hmm. it's just a way of thinking about it that's a little different that's a really good way of looking at it so i'll read the next question a 46 year old male comes to the clinic because he's been coughing up specks of blood for the past two weeks his urine also has been much darker than usual despite stop right there yes stop right there so you've got a man who can't is coming and he's coughing up blood, and we're talking about a renal question. So what is this? Well, I mean, if you want to cheat the system here, this is most likely a... Uh, so Coughing up specks of blood for the past two weeks. We're just looking at good pastures. Yeah, exactly. We're looking at good pastures because he's got both lung involvement and kidney involvement. All right, continue. <laughs> All right, so with that in mind, everyone, uh, his temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Pulse is 73, respiratory rate is 14, and his blood pressure is 154 over 92. Physical exam shows inspiratory rails at the lung bases bilaterally, and lab serum studies show a creatinine of 3.1 and a BUN of 26. 24-hour urine shows low urine output and the presence of 2.8 grams of protein. Immunological testing shows a positive anti-glomerular basement membrane antibody. Kidney biopsy is performed and shows a crescent collection of protein and macrophages within the Bowman space. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And our answer choices are A, amyloidosis, B, focal segmental glomerular nephrosis, C, minimal change disease, or D, rapid progressive glomerular nephritis. Read the first sentence of this question, and I'm like, this is good pastures disease. And I'm like, okay, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And I think, all right, where's good pastures? And then I get down here, and I'm like, oh, I don't see that one here. Mm-hmm. Now what? So it, it, you have to, you're, you need to know, like, th- this is a nephritis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're peeing blood with their urine. And they've got some protein, they're hypertensive, you know, their creatinine and BUN is elevated, right? Mm-hmm. You also have crescents on, on their uh, kidney biopsy, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm thinking about crescents on a kidney biopsy, I don't know why, but something about the, the way the word crescent, it really goes nicely with the word progressive, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, like progressive crescents or something. Mm-hmm. And that's really, you know, maybe that can guide you to the answer or not, but a, a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis is a kind of an over like an umbrella term for the glomerulonephritis that fall in it, such as good pastures, right? That's correct. And if you look at all the other answer choices, all of those are definition are um, examples of nephrotic syndromes. So if you knew each of these was nephritic or nephrotic, when you saw that it was 2.8 grams of protein, which is nephritic range and not nephrotic, you could eliminate all the other answer choices because all of them are nephrotic. 
oh, wow, I didn't even think about it that way. But yeah, that's perfect. So if you are just able to determine that these other changes like amyloidosis, FSGN, or uh, minimal change are all nephrotic syndromes, you could probably get your way to the question just by knowing it's a nephritic. And Mm -hmm. this last one here is nephritis. It says it in the name. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Wow. That's actually really good. Yeah. So that's a that's a common way that I've learned from rounding and from seeing actual patients when I was on my nephrology rotation is my attending would always ask us, they're like, all right, well, what's the protein in their urine? And then from that, it cuts in half your list of differential diagnoses. So if you guys can figure out a way for you to remember like the nephritic syndromes and clump them all together and the nephrotic syndromes and clump them all together and then just know like the one or two facts that differentiates each of them from the other ones in their group, it makes finding a differential diagnosis or figuring out what the disease the patient has like 10 times easier. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, being able to chunk those things together is going to save you when you're you know, trying to go through kind of like a flow chart mm-hmm. of, you know, how do you get down to RPGN and, you know, good pastures uh, being a subtype of that, right? Yeah, exactly. Saves saves you a little bit of headspace, so to speak, and memory to just be able to cut things and clump them together. And that makes it a little bit faster. And especially if you clump these together and you're doing like a nephrology rotation, it makes it so much easier when your attending asks you like, oh, what does this patient have? To be able to say, oh, it's nephritic and thus it's going to be one of X, Y, or Z and gives you that little extra time to show that you do know what you're talking about. And it just makes you look better on rotations, I found, is if you can like clump things and be able to like talk your way through your process as you're doing it rather than just like guess an answer. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's what medicine really will come down to is being able to read some of the information and then infer from that, you know, the overarching problem and then you narrow it down, right? Exactly. Okay. That that was pretty quick. And I, I know I kind of uh, threw us off with, you know, wanting to know what it was from the first sentence, but that's an important one to know. You have to know good pastures for yeah. this exam. It's a pretty common boards <laughs> question, unfortunately. Anytime you're doing a renal question, they're talking about coughing up blood. You need to know about that one. Mm-hmm. That's not the first time I've said that either on this podcast. Okay, let's move on here. And we will end it there. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album The Mind Sweep. We'll see you back next week for some more high yield learning. <laughs>